Hello again. This is Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. All right, let's start with a note to all our listeners. Today's episode focuses on male survivors of childhood sexual abuse. So in order to cover the topic openly and honestly, the language and stories of today's episode are quite graphic. So listener discretion is advised. Now with that, here we go. The Me Too movement has shed much needed light on sexual assault and harassment, but sexual abuse of another kind remains hidden even today. In the United States, it's estimated that one in six men was sexually abused as a child, which means that in the U.S. alone, more than 25 million men are survivors living with and trying to heal from the effects of childhood sexual abuse. So with us today, we are lucky to have comedian Paul Gilmartin, host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. Psychology Today calls his show remarkable and says it, quote, normalizes what so many others feel, but have been too fearful or ashamed to express. And the New York Times calls it a perversely safe place. And in my opinion, that's because it busts wide open the myth that you are alone in mental illness and no one understands how you feel. It is a blisteringly honest and supportive place where you can find validation and some laughs for any experience you can imagine. So Paul Gilmartin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. And uh, I should also mention that the people should listen to your episode when you are on my podcast, because um, not only do I think it's a great episode, the listeners do as, as well. Uh, it was really, really well received. And uh, for those of you that haven't heard it, it's uh, about social anxiety. And it's such an important topic. But let's talk about me. <laughs> sure. So on your show, you got me to talk about myself, which is a hard nut to crack. So that was impressive. So now, can we start with your story? Sure. Um, I didn't really process the kind of under the radar of sexual abuse that I experienced from my mom until I was about oh, 49 years old. I'm 55 now, and it was after I started the podcast, and I began interviewing a lot of people who've experienced unwanted sexual contact as, as children, that I began to realize that it doesn't always have to be someone touching you for something to be sexually abusive. Oh, and another stat that I would like to throw in there is, you know, you mentioned one in six males having an unwanted sexual experience by the time they're 18. And the other stat is that over 40% of the perpetrators are female yes. in, those, in those. And that blew my mind when I read it because I grew up thinking any negative feelings I had about my mom or feeling exposed or drained by her was just me being a bad son. Mm. And it wasn't until I got into support groups that I began to kind of unnumb myself and get back in my body and take another look at these events that happened. 
there's a term that I'm sure you're familiar with, but some of the listeners might not be, which is uh, covert sexual abuse, which can come in a variety of ways. But I had always thought that the only type of sexual abuse would be someone touching your genitals or you touching theirs. And that did not occur with my mom, but there was a pattern of things that I pushed down for years and years and years. And, you know, some of the uh, highlights, I guess you could say, <laughs> there's got to be a better, a better word than that, lowlights. Um, she took my temperature rectally until I was eight years old and asked her why we were still doing it that way. Um, she was not doing it to my brother, who is roughly my age, a year apart. And I always felt like something, like I was being tricked. And mm-hmm. I would just brush it out of my mind because I would say, moms don't do that. Um, and when I asked her, why are we still doing it this way? She said, because I'm afraid you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I remember not believing her, but again, just brushing it out of my mind. I was chided for wanting to cover up if I was naked in front of her or in my underwear. And she would, she would say, Oh, it's nothing I haven't seen before. You know, I saw your thing before you ever did. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time that uh, part of a parent's job is to help their child feel that they have autonomy over their body and listen to their boundaries when they try to set boundaries. So you know, I was kind of made to believe that if there was an issue, it was me, whether that was me interpreting that or not. As far as emotionally, there being a covert incest, some of my memories of being maybe seven, eight, nine years old is my mom, when we were alone in the house, she would never do this when anybody else was there. She would break down and cry really loudly in her bedroom with the door closed. And I would ask her if she was okay. And then I would come in there and console her while she cried about how bad her marriage was and how she was so tired of us selfish bastards uh, and that she wanted to leave us. And so I would say, you know, we'll try to do better. And so very early on, I felt like I was the parent. And that's, that's kind of another form of inappropriate Mm -hmm. that is often found in covert incest. And then there was, and this didn't hit me until I'd been in recovery for about, I don't know, maybe five years. And I was thinking about that, those moments when I would have to be her therapist at seven or eight years old and console her. And there were times um, I had issues with my testicles not dropping when I was uh, a boy. And so I had a couple of operations. Again, in that window of time, somewhere between 9 and 11. And there was one instance in particular that was really traumatizing to me, which uh, I went to the doctor and it was at the University of Chicago. And the nurse said, uh, okay, take all your clothes off and get on the table. And the room was kind of cold. And normally they would give you something to cover yourself up with, Mm -hmm. even if just partially, but they didn't offer me anything. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I could ask. Mm 
and I'm laying there naked for 10 minutes. And my mom's sitting right there, which, you know, she was always in the, in the room, uh, which isn't necessarily you know, it, an abusive thing, but I'm sitting there and feeling exposed and cold. Then the doctor comes in and he brings a herd of interns mm. with and I just kind of felt myself float above my body. Like this isn't, this is not happening because I was really ashamed about my body too. And the doctor began just handling my genitals. Like I was a, you know, like a piece of meat and talking about me as if I wasn't even there talking about what was wrong with them. And I just remember it hurting, not only physically, but hurting emotionally and trying to fight back tears. And at one point I looked at the group of students and my eye eyes made contact with the female intern who gave me a look of, I am so sorry this is happening to you. And that's when I started to, started to cry. And I don't know how obvious it was to anybody else that, that I was crying, but my mother never said anything, did anything. Um, there was just always kind of a feeling that I was an object to her. And when I looked at those two instances side by side, me having to console her at eight and then her not protecting me in that moment, it occurred to me that she, she just couldn't see me. Mm. she just couldn't see me. Mm -hmm. She couldn't really see what she wanted out of me. And I know it's because she's a sick person. I don't believe she's a bad person, but there was a lot of other instances that, that I could list, but this, this gives you a sense of what it was like. You've said so many important things in telling this. I want to highlight your statement that, you know, we often think of sexual abuse as like penetration or violent or aggressive. And that can absolutely be true. And that some early research has characterized female sexual abuse by female perpetrators certainly can fall into that category. But it's characterized more as like emotionally manipulative. It's more like mind games or like when you describe her crying behind a closed door and clearly luring you in and making you console her. Like that's definitely falls squarely into the category of the covert abuse. And like other things could be, I don't know, say an abuser making a child watch porn with them or walking around naked and or commenting on the child's body or asking, you know, exactly what they do with their boyfriend. So it absolutely does not have to be penetration. Yeah. Always walking in on them when they're changing, mm -hmm. um, calling them into the bathroom when they're taking a bath or coming into the bathroom when their child is in the bathroom, not allowing there to be locks on the doors and always making it seem as if the child right. is prudish somehow. Right. And these are the, once I started opening up about what happened to me, so many people started coming forward and sharing with me that, that, oh my God, that explains why I shut down when I'm around my mom mm -hmm. and why her hug makes my skin crawl, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was one other event that I think really kind of uh, had an effect on me was I was about 12 or 13 years old and I 
fell down and got some gravel in my knee. And when I came home, my mom said, let's get you in the bathtub. And mm. my first instinct was I'm too old to be in the bathtub, but I didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, I'll wear a bathing suit. And then I imagined what I thought my mom would say, which would be that she would chide me for being so prudish. And I didn't want to deal with that. So I didn't wear a bathing suit. And as I was sitting in the bathtub waiting for her to come in, I got really aroused and I was so confused by it. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just, you know, praying it would go down before she came in and it, it didn't. And there was no suds in the bath. And, you know, she was working on my knee, which was very close. And there was just this energy mm. in the bathtub. Nothing was said, but it was, um, it just felt so super f***ed up. And I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, I feel like I'm being tricked. Hmm. But I thought because I had an erection, it must be my fault. I must be dirty. I must be a monster, etc. And that feeling probably still sticks with me to some degree today, even though I intellectually know it's not true. Yeah. There are so many ripples from uh, from incest or really any sexual trauma. Uh, and the thing I discovered doing the podcast is people who are physically abused, emotionally abused, or sexually abused, it doesn't really matter what form the abuse takes because the ripple is the belief that we don't matter. Mm -hmm. Our parents' needs come before ours. And that's the thing that screws you up. And our brains, as you know, will do anything they can to minimize what happened to us so that we can survive. I had a therapist tell me when I was struggling with all of this, because even to, to this day, when I tell my story, I feel like a baby, an exaggerator. I'm doing it for attention. I'm throwing my mom under the bus. And my therapist said to me, um, she has had clients who were used by their parents in child pornography where there was BDSM and they said the exact same thing mm -hmm. that other people had it worse, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really not until you embrace the feelings that you had and give weight to them that you can begin to heal. And it's so hard because we are programmed to love our parents. And so many of the people I work with have such a swirl of emotions of, well, but I love them, but I don't trust them. And I should probably cut them out of my life. But now sometimes I have a good time with them. And we just never speak of this. Like it's, there's such a confusing, contradictory mix of emotions that is so confusing and so hard to work one's way out of. And so I have a follow-up question because I think what you're saying is so important. So I found a study that found that only 16% of men with documented histories of sexual abuse, so meaning that like the sexual abuse was such that a social service agency like Child Protective Services was called in. So quite serious. Only 16% of those men consider themselves to have been sexually abused compared to 64% of women with documented histories. So what do you make of this discrepancy? Why are so many survivors not able to yet say this happened to me 
like for you, like at 49, you started having these epiphanies. So why do you think there is such a, a discrepancy there? Um, two things. I think one is other than the occasional trope of the hot teacher with the 14 year old boy, we don't see female perpetrator stories mm -hmm. uh, very often. So that that's one of the reasons why I never put two and two together. I thought men are just dirtier. We're base and women are morally above us. And especially we never think about moms. No, we yeah. And to think of moms as not even having sexual desires. And I don't know if what my mom did to me was sexually gratifying to her. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is processing the feelings because it's not about uh, whether something is prosecutable right. or what the person's intent is for healing purposes. Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, what's important is to begin talking about it, letting go of the shame and beginning to connect to people who can help you. And the other reason I think is we think if there was an erection, we must have wanted it. Mm, and mm. I now know that our soul and our body can experience two completely thing, different things at the same time. Right. As you know, I'm sure from working with clients, um, or doing research, many people, many women have orgasms when being raped or molested. Many boys do as as well. But I think because it's visible, um, not only does the male feel shame, but it's often used against the child by saying, see, you do like this. You know, somebody mm. just told me a story about a six-year-old boy whose aunt began having intercourse with him. And you know, she was in her thirties maybe, and she would, she groomed him by giving him erections and then saying, you know, this is pleasurable to you. This is, see, you want this, this feels good. So it's something can feel good physically and freak us out and hurt us at the same time. The male role in sex or the like what society expects of boys and sex like boys are said to have gotten lucky if they have sex with women you know or like you mentioned the hot teacher like even in the news female teachers are said to have relationships you know with their male students yes. they are often not said yes. they raped male students and especially with mothers you you mentioned like the role mothers are supposed to play in our lives like they're supposed to be the nurturers and the caretakers and it's so at odds with sexual abuse that people and even mental health professionals have a hard time wrapping their heads around the reality you know it th i believe that these things are a generational trauma mm -hmm. it, 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 it's hard for me i don't feel rage anymore at my mom mostly because i've cut her out of my life and it's not because of what she did it's because she won't fully own it and she doesn't respect my boundaries mm -hmm. today but mm -hmm. i have compassion for her because she had a terrible childhood, and I know that this is prob this probably goes back hundreds of years to you know the first person that that abused that person. But stopping the cycle is the thing to focus on. And you know, if you want to prosecute that person, that's great. But if you do, you should do it for you, mm -hmm. not because somebody is telling you to do it. You know, I still have love for my mom. There's many great things that she gave me. Mm -hmm. And it breaks my heart that I 
can't have a relationship with her. But I, I reached the conclusion uh, a couple of years ago that it's important to have compassion for others, but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. And that's what I had been doing. I would get depressed after being on the phone with her. I would escape into pornography. It was not healthy for me. And it was painful cutting ties with her because the image of her I had created to survive died when I yes. saw the reality of, of what it was. And in that moment, I broke down and I started sobbing. And my wife at the time said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say this because she saw what was up the first time she saw how my mom touched me, looked mm. at me, but I didn't want to believe it because yeah, my therapist said it was less scary for you to call yourself dirty than to say, I am trapped in a home with a person who isn't safe. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So this is the perfect segue into the most important question. So how can survivors start this process of healing? So you mentioned having compassion for yourself, cutting the abuser out of your life, if that's something that works for you. What, what else do you think is important? Um, support groups have been hugely, hugely healing for me in tandem with, with therapy, because it's important, I believe, to have both perspectives, both the professional perspective of a therapist, but also the intimacy of peer-to-peer -peer bonding over a topic or a wound that two people share, because they're much like people who've been through a war. There is a level of understanding that really only someone who, who has your lived experience can understand. Even though the details may differ, if you were used by a parent and don't feel safe around them, it doesn't really matter what form that abuse and use took because it's about us standing up for ourselves and claiming our voices and, and validating our experiences. It's really hard to validate our experiences because there's that part of our brain that doesn't want to believe it. You know, even six years later, there is a part of me that feels, like I said, like an exaggerator mm -hmm. every time I share it, that is terrified that somebody is going to say, you're such a phony, you know, you're such a drama queen, et cetera, et cetera. So, Talking about it, getting vulnerable, sharing your story, especially the details of it that are difficult to talk about. It. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, talking about the erection in the bathtub was really difficult. And, you know, while I try to only share it in circumstances where it's appropriate, you know, it certainly does take discretion in deciding who, where, and how we talk about our experiences. And that will become clearer once we start talking uh, about it. And the other thing is to give yourself compassion in the way in which you heal, because it's so bumpy. Mm, it's mm -hmm. so ungraceful. <laughs> and my shame went from, I got an erection in the bathtub to, oh, I'm talking about this again. I'm such a, an exaggerator to, oh my God, I'm, I'm feeling adrenaline and cortisone while talking about it. And Sometimes when talking to a female who felt nurturing to me, talk, sharing about the story, I would become aroused and I would have sexual thoughts about them and I would want them to rescue that 
11 year old boy in inside of me. And I, so then I felt shame about that. And all of these things have slowly, slowly ebbed away. And I don't get the fight or flight response when I tell my story uh, as, as much today. It's, it's hardly there at all. And that's a testament to healing, but it takes a long time and it's a lot of two steps forward, one step back and sticking with it. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and for uh, sharing the details, because I think the details are so important in, in validating and normalizing other survivors' experience. So many people think that they are the only one or that they something must be wrong or dirty or broken about them. And I think the more people talk and share their experience and their, their wisdom, the, the faster the stigma will evaporate and people will be able to heal. Agreed. Agreed. Nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person that they want to right. be. Right. That's, that's a great way to put it. And I imagine that there are many men and women listening who are just so validated and so empowered by your story and your experiences. So thank you so much. And thank you for what you do. I, I love what you do. Oh, thank you. I, I love what I do, too. So there is an organization founded specifically to help men who have had unwanted and abusive sexual experiences called One in Six and can be found at the number one in, so number one, I-N, the number six, dot org. Do you know of any resources that you think our listeners might find helpful? That is the one that, that I would recommend. Awesome. And if there are people listening who have experienced unwanted sexual contact, covert or otherwise, by a female caregiver send me an email because I'm collecting people's stories anonymously if they wish, because I want to write something about it. So they can email me at mentalpod at gmail.com. And that is a nice segue to say to hear more from Paul. You can tune into his extraordinary podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. You can listen and subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. And please follow Paul on Twitter and Instagram at mental pod or on facebook at facebook.com slash mental pod so again paul thank you so much i appreciate and it's great to talk to you okay with that here are the most important take-homes from today's episode first you can start healing from childhood sexual abuse at any age paul's realization came at 49 and yours can come decades earlier or later. Next, we usually think about sexual abuse as overt sexual abuse, rape, penetration, fondling, molestation, and the like. But sexual abuse can also be covert, and it's common for survivors to feel like covert sexual abuse isn't legitimate and to downplay or minimize what happened. But remember, the act isn't the deciding factor. Instead, look at your functioning and coping in the present day. If your life is negatively affected today, so for instance, you have trouble trusting others, you don't feel safe, you feel a deep sense of shame or worthlessness, you think all you have to offer a relationship is sex, you can't feel loving or close to a partner, with all these things and more, whether your experience was overt or covert doesn't matter. Reach out, educate yourself, get support, and start to heal. Next. It is a myth that women cannot sexually abuse boys, and a bigger myth that mothers cannot be abusers, but they can and are. 
And in fact, women make up 40% of perpetrators of sexual abuse. All right, next, just like hearts beat and brains make thoughts, genitals respond. So if you felt aroused during abusive situations, it does not mean that you liked it, you wanted it, or that it was your fault. It only means that you have nerve endings. And finally, something we didn't cover in the interview, but is important to say, is that many men who are abused are afraid that they are destined to become abusers themselves. They worry they shouldn't have children or be left alone with children. And while it is true that most people who abuse kids were abused themselves, the reverse is not true. The fact is that the vast majority of people who are abused break the cycle and do not become abusers. Again, for more information on all these topics and more, check out oneinsix.org. Thank you for making The Savvy Psychologist a part of your life. As always, Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and I'll see you here every Friday for a happier, healthier mind.